Hey everyone, this is Eric Endress, the host of In Case of Emergency, the podcast where we talk about keeping people safe, managing and responding to emergencies, reviewing and dissecting past incidents, and talking about best practices. Each week we're going to sit down with all sorts of cool folks who play a role in this, school administrators, law enforcement officers, firefighters, emergency managers, and a wide array of people with expertise or experience worth sharing. We're super excited. We already have a number of amazing guests lined up. For those of you who are new, just a bit about me and how I got here. I'm the CEO of OnScene Technologies. I've spent 30 years in the volunteer fire rescue service in my hometown of Ramsey, New Jersey, and I'm a recipient of the New York City Mayor Award for Heroism and Bravery. Always a mouthful to say that. So more than five years ago, we set out to create products that would transform the way uh, organization leaders and public safety incident commanders manage emergencies where they work. And today, our product, Share 911, is deployed in school districts, government agencies, hospitals, and corporations of all sizes. But enough of that. We're here today to talk to our first guest, um, who came to us through a LinkedIn connection, which is super great, Catherine Stroud. Strouds, tell me how to pronounce it. Okay. Who is joining us from, believe it or not, Australia. So, Catherine, can you take a moment to tell everybody a little bit about yourself? What do you do for a living? Uh, I know you're also a doctorate student. Maybe give us a little bit of your story. Sure. So um, I work at a university in Australia. Um, so if you've heard of Sydney, it's a very large city <laughs> in Australia compared to the rest of us, the rest of our country. And I work at an inner city university. Um, you said you have a university of technology. We have about 50,000 staff and students combined. And I am the emergency and business continuity manager there. So I've been working there for just under two years. Prior to that in my life, I worked in consulting and emergency management for eight years. And a lot of my clients were high schools, primary schools, and a lot of them, and also other universities in the education sphere. Uh, also, as you mentioned, I'm doing my doctorate in public safety. So I've um, just finished my, actually my probation for that and my research proposal was approved. And my research is focused on emergency behaviours at a university. As unfortunately, people do not act like you would expect them to and, and do a lot of very few things during emergencies. So my research is looking is really focusing on what are the behaviours that we have, what that we're seeing. How do we how do we mitigate these issues that are dangerous in our training and make sure that we are prepared, better preparing our staff and students so in case there is an emergency they stay safe. So. That, that's so many so amazing. I have so many questions about everything that you just said. Let's start <laughs> with though. How did you? Where did your interest in emergency management and response and I guess you'd call it the sociology of emergencies. You've been doing this for a long time, it seems like, right? Like, it's not like 10 years. So was there something that sparked your interest in going into this line of work? Yeah. Um, well, I actually didn't even know what emergency management was 10 years ago. <laughs> I originally did a, a psychology degree and then a postgraduate and realized I love learning about human behavior, but I could not stand the idea of sitting around counseling people, listening to how does that make you feel and all that <laughs> I like to learn about why people do things. And I was always fascinated about how people reacted in emergencies. Uh, particularly in high school, I remember, I remember watching live the whole day. I took the day off to watch the 9-11 and read and, and watching the, just the responses and listening to all the stories of people that could have, that could have lived, that could have, that 
would have could have easily gotten out safely and it just amazed me of how yeah how much life can be lost from simple human behavior aspects so funnily enough i yeah, finished my psych degree and didn't really didn't really think about it much and then there was looking for a job which happened to be during the reception which was fun to try and get a job then <laughs> that's and always the best this, time to look for a job by the way oh yeah and you go for a job and there's 50 other people applying and right yeah but interestingly this job for an emergency management consultant came up and they in the in the um application said uh, psychology graduates are encouraged which is interesting and so i went for the job and i said i had to do a bit of research like, crap, why actually is emergency management? I have no idea. <laughs> and in my research, you realize, wow, this is actually really interesting. Um, look, I'll give it a go and see what I think. And ended up within six months loving it and thought, this is great. I can really apply my love of, of human behavior and why people do stupid things to this job. So the job was mostly training, making, um, preparing exercises at a lower level. And then over the years, started to get more qualifications, a few extra postgraduate degrees in public safety and emergency management, and started working with bigger organisations over in our western side of our country, which is a very oil and gas heavy area, very similar mm -hmm. to what you have in Texas, a lot of mine resource companies. And that's when we'd run our big exercises where we'd crush cars and we'd get we'd fly in helicopters and do some really cool stuff. I think I'll have to come over for one of those. That sounds like oh, fun. It's so much fun. It's, oh, I love it. And the amount of, the amount of people, we have sometimes 200 people involved in these, the planning, sometimes running for two days straight. These were, oh, it was great fun, but resource industry of Australia goes in peaks and troughs and starting to die off again. So uh, look, both myself and my husband realized, look, WA is a bit dead. Let's move to the big city and let's go to Sydney, where all the work mm -hmm. is. And ended up finding my dream job working in, at East University, and I absolutely love it. It's it's there's a lot. It's it's busy. It's a lot of work, but look, I enjoy it. And it's the best thing is I can I'll be working from home sometimes to catch up, and I enjoy it. <laughs> it's more interesting to me than watching TV sometimes. Well, that's one of the most important things I believe is doing something that you're passionate about and that you love doing. You know, uh, I wake up every morning and I'm just super charged up because I don't feel like I go to work. I feel like we're solving problems and helping people. And it seems like you share that passion. Oh, so, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so when we chatted on LinkedIn, you kind of alluded to the fact that there's different types of emergencies or have been different types of incidents happening in Australia than perhaps we're more focused on here in the U.S., yeah. uh, for example, active shooter incidents mm -hmm. and gun violence. Maybe for the benefit of anybody who's listening to this, you know, what are the, what are the hot things happening or what has happened what are the things that you are trying to educate people or prepare them for? So interesting. Up until 2017, we followed everything. We followed how America, um, with all of our counterterrorism and all of our and all of our training, and we realised that we don't because we don't have the same issue with guns over here. That we have very strict gun control. We just don't have active shooter events, but we are. We do experience a lot of stabbings. A lot of unfortunately a lot of them we experience um, car rammings hostile vehicles so there was a, a big push to actually get us actually put something together for Australia that actually matched what we what we're facing so there was a big revamp and it we now we now focus on what we call active armed defenders so hmm. we do there is some occasionally issues with guns but look most almost almost all of the large attacks are usually blade uh, 
sharp blade related issues. Now, are these, uh, to, sorry to interrupt you, but are these terror attacks or are these individuals attacking, Both. like robbing people? Um, quite often, unfortunately, it's mental health issues, but still in, in terror related. Look, we have had terror related issues with guns. And a few years ago, just down the road from our university, we had a, we had, um, a, a nice attack. We had the, they were aiming for the major news station, but ended up in the cafe, the Lit Cafe siege, which was a gun related issue. But it seems to be the other, anything terrorist related actually ends up looking past our vehicles. But we don't have the same. We don't have the same problem in America. We still, uh, we were preparing. We know that the climate is changing. There's a lot of work in this area. In There's now task force and teams that have been set up across Australia to, to try and actively promote pre preparation. So like I myself and my boss, we sit on the counterterrorism forums where we, do, where we, sit, we get all the intel that's, that's not supposed to go to the public and, mm -hmm. and prepare to be able to prepare our teams because we are classified in Australia as a, what they call a crowded place. So any business that's called it's under the crowded place has this, this, this will focus on look, trying to build resilience. And look, it was something that's only really just started in Australia. And it's, it's, there's still a long way to go. We're, we're really, we're not as nowhere near as mature as you are in America or even going over in, over to England or even in France. What's interesting about that um, is the ramming attacks, as you call them, which we've seen happen in Europe, Germany, um, Paris, I think, has had some. Uh, that's still relatively new here. A matter of fact, uh, you know, I live right outside of New York City, and I guess a year, maybe a year ago, they had they had two incidents: one in Times Square, which was very high profile, but one that looked another one that looked a lot more like what you're seeing in other countries, where a guy drove a box truck onto the bike path on the west side highway and killed and injured a tremendous amount of people and in response to that the city has deployed you know uh, hardened the bike path so you really can't drive your car onto it what's being done there because i think and i ask this because i expect this to become more commonplace here um, and you're it, it's it's fascinating to me that it's something that you're fixing and it's new to us it's almost like the vice versa of what you might expect right yeah. I suppose we, yeah, um, so we, it's a few things of um, the last few years of uh, the capital cities have a major push for bollards, but not ugly, you know, the big ugly ones you see that right. you might see over in France, very strategically placed bollards or, or things, or even, that might not be a bollard, but a, a large structures that will obviously prevent, prevent the ramming attacks. And also there's a lot of, a lot of research going into it. So for instance, there was the, the, the um, New South Wales, which is where Sydney is, the, their counterterrorism group uh, actually went through, did a six-month invest, uh, investigation on the diff, on different bollard types and different vehicle types and finding out what are best ways to prevent these things. So they were finding, and it was interesting, they found things they didn't expect, such as lining up two buses strategically is far better than any bollard. Which really? Was something, yep. Two buses, if you line them up the right way, they, and because that would, they were actually writing off vehicles to do this. It was the video is just so much, so much fun to watch. <laughs> All these vehicles just smashing into these things, but they, yeah, they weren't expecting some of the results. And then bollards that were rated a certain level actually weren't as effective as they thought. So there's there is a big focus on that. And even at our level, like our university is we we do risk assessments in these areas, and we've invested a lot of money into getting the right bollards for the right areas as 
it is something, it's so easy. You don't need any skill or a license to be able to perform one of these. It's not a, it's very, it's a very, it's a low, I hate to use the weight, way is it? It's a low hanging fruit. It's a very easy, easy right. way to get a lot of people at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, I'm, I've been very surprised that it doesn't happen more frequently because it's so much, it, it can be perpetrated quite easily. You know, I call things like, you know, a crowded group of a big crowd of people, a soft target, whether that's people in a park at a fair, uh, you know, coming out of a school, you don't need a gun. You don't need anything other than a vehicle and you can you know, seriously injure a gigantic amount of people and sometimes even drive away. Yep. Um, well, interesting. I think a lot of it in Australia may be copycats, but also because it is limited things, other weapons they can really use. But we've also, a lot of our re- of research I've done is a lot of ISIS propaganda is actually encouraging, they're actually writing into all their, writing into all their magazines and, and, and promoting amongst themselves. But this is a really good way to do it. And it's becoming, it's, and that's more of an international level, but it is something mm-hmm. that the last two, become more and more in focus even though it has been happening for a long time it's now becoming wow that's easy why do we not think of that before right right so how often does is there a vehicular attack in australia well not that often like the thing is we just don't have the same amount of attacks in australia overall for Mm. in the active armed defender area but at least one or two a year which doesn't sound like much but for us that is oh sure we don't Yeah. yeah Our biggest issue is knife attacks, though. Knife attacks at our, where I work, particularly. It's I can't obviously talk the details, but look, we that's our biggest. That's the one thing that we always are most conscious about and vigilant about. So, what do you do to prepare people for it? Are these mass casualty incidents, or are they one person stabbing another person? Generally, it's just the one. It's the one on one, but we prepare for that. So, just said, look, I'm, the reason why I'm up this late at the moment is just run through some training with our team overnight because we don't really want to upset the staff and students. So we, we run through what we called code black training because sure. you, I know you have different code colors there, but so we looked at, I mean, that's what we're talking about now, active armed defenders, hostile vehicles, IEDs, bomb threats, and then went through a one hour exercise where we had, so I have a, I get um, a friend of mine who's ex-military and very trained and trained in all this area. And he was run and he had my gel blaster guns and we had a fake, hostage and we're and testing out our cctv processes and mm-hmm. testing out our supervisor responses and we do we do that at least twice a year with each guard so four sessions at twice a year which lots of fun but <laughs> it can be quite confronting because we try and make it as realistic as possible and it's it, at the end sometimes i start feeling actually quite <laughs> quite quite frustrated and normal and terrified at times because of the the amount of effort we put into these and the amount of planning and preparation so we plan for the worst and hope that nothing happens. Absolutely. So these these exercises are training your guards to react to a, a knife wielding attacker. Yes, and also shooting. So we've been doing double double pronged attacks. So my first week we did a first of all it was a bomb threat that was a package that and then the, and then they went to another building with a knife. Last mm-hmm. week we ran an exercise where we had um, it was it was just a it was just a I know we did a vehicle ramming into the front door, which is the main entrance to security. And then there was a, and then he had a, a semi-automatic weapon. And mm-hmm. then tonight's was a hostage, was the hostage and the, and the other person taking with, with about shooting anybody that wouldn't, <laughs> that wouldn't let them in. And it's, it's, it's good. We can learn, we learn a lot of things. We learn like how our capability and our CCTV systems are. And mm-hmm. also 
it's really important for our guards to learn that, look, this is a situation where, look, your life comes first. And the goal is to stay alive. In the situation, if you get shot by the gel bullet, it's, right. you, it's, there's, some, there's some words after. Yeah. So those are the guards. You said you have a student population or a campus population of 50,000. Is that right? Yes. That's a lot of people. Yeah, and look, that's a work in progress to try and be able to get training into there. We have, a, unfortunately, there's in universities, which is interesting compared to high schools, which I've worked with different, a lot of sensitivities around running these types of exercises. So mm -hmm. we're running a full multi-jurisdiction with all with, with police and counterterrorism for the whole university in July, which still has a lot of restrictions around. It's, 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 it's even hard to roll out lockdown training just for even our yeah. staff students which is bizarre because eight years ago i was running lockdown exercises for high schools but universities still seem to be very hesitant to to, to engage in that area mm -hmm. because they're worried about they're worried about upsetting the students they're worried about about people about people getting up getting triggered from right yep so it's, it's it's a lot harder which is i thought was strange because yeah the high schools have been doing it and it's almost it's if the high school doesn't do it, it's why not? It's it's just part of the, it's, it's just as important and popular as running fire evacuations here. It, it fascinates me, the people who, you know, kind of poo-poo uh, training like this. As a matter of fact, uh, this morning there was an article came out that uh, kind of questioned the validity or purposeness of active shooter training in uh, schools in the U.S. saying that it traumatizes the students, it doesn't really there's no measurable improved outcome as a result of all this. Therefore, we should probably not do it. Into which How do you measure it if it happens? <laughs> right. Well, that person, you know, that person can write all the words they want until it's their kid it's in the school. And you know, uh, my comparison that I drew was every time I fly on an airplane, I'm, you know, run through a 10-minute lecture about airplane safety. Yep. You know, what if the pressure drops? What if the cabin, you know, what if we plummet into the earth? These are all the things you should do. Of course, there's no training on what to do if someone jumps up and tries to overtake the airplane. Yeah. But, you know, if we're just going to say, well, this is too traumatic, like uh, 200 times a year when I get on a plane, I'm reminded that I might die yeah. <laughs> sometime in the next few hours. And here's what I should do. So I, uh, I, I think it's interesting that, you know, people who are critical of these drills, and that was kind of what I was going to ask. It seems like you're doing a tremendous amount of preparation and training do the employees or the is the culture they're accepting of this amount of preparation or the, do they think that you're you know over the top is it not enough you know is or is it just right that people are kind of going like we are super duper prepared because Catherine is you know doing drills like this every week depends who I talk to pretty much everyone from top down driven from our beat from our vice chancellor downwards in, and anyone's security and facilities yes they think it's great it's always HR that has the issue <laughs> it's just always the right. case right but, oh, interesting you brought up about the that the, about the well, how do you know if it's not measurable I, I just love this Rick Scalali, I forgot how to pronounce his last name from 9-11, who he did drills for evacuating the tower every month and everyone said it's, it's too much. Why do you do this? We're right. sick of it. And they used to get so frustrated with him. Yet during when that when the when those towers were hit, his team were the safest people. They knew exactly sure. what they did when they got out. He saved their lives, yet they'd whinge and say, Look, this is unnecessary. So you're never gonna know until you can't measure something until something happens so it's it's incredibly foolish to 
it to even suggest that it's not necessary. Yeah, I thought it was a pretty foolish perspective that this person had, but I, I think everybody's entitled to their opinion. Oh, yeah, everyone's entitled. It's just, yeah, and I know, it's, look, it's culture across across the world now is the protection, every, the snowflakes generation where everyone has to be protected and every, right. everyone has everyone's feelings get hurt all the time and that's what I struggle with dealing with this. With this. Look, you can't. <laughs> you can't have that attitude. We can't. Otherwise, no one, no one's gonna, no one's gonna be prepared. We have to be able to, just, look, just accept that the world's not a great place, and these things happen. Bad things do happen. Right. Yep. Absolutely. And I, I'm, I'm surprised that snowflakes actually also exist in your country. We, oh, we, they do. I think we thought that that was just a U.S. issue, but no, no. Snowflakes where they're adults, and oh, I have to put an incident report in because they called me a certain name or. Right. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I mean, when I was at university back when I first, I didn't even know security existed. I never saw security on campus. Didn't even know they existed. You didn't need to. Right. It's I, I, it's just bizarre the the culture change of just the I think the millennials just. I don't know, but it's, it be, it's might be an unpopular opinion, but the change in attitudes and the change in how just, yeah, it's, it's not just your country. It's, it's, I think it's just across the whole Western world. Yeah. So I, I think the last topic, because we want to keep these relatively short and digestible. Yes. Um, can you talk a little bit about your studies and the sociology of how people respond in emergencies? What are you finding? What's probably, you know, is there something that you've discovered that makes you go, oh my gosh, this is, crazy yeah um so the only reason why i thought was really like, really got me into it with universities because look, i spent eight years consulting to other mostly organizations and high schools and primary schools and everything everyone it was just very structured straightforward and then getting this university environment just was completely overwhelmed with the the lack of care factor because they're adults and they have they they don't have, they're not being told to what to do by by a teacher as you would in a school environment there's just absolutely no sense of danger. Mm -hmm. the, the the alarm fatigue, the more false alarms, the more the people are going to believe, they're not going to actually take it seriously. But just even when there are, just watching the attitudes of people laughing and taking photos when they actually see smoke and fire and wanting to right. tweet about it rather than getting themselves safe, the, the, the frustration. And I thought, well, let's deep dive into it further. So what, who are the worst and finding that sometimes, sometimes the students are actually generally better and it's actually sometimes the staff that are the worst <laughs> and trying to work out which is and then I've, so I wanted to go over a level look is it the, the support staff or is it the academic staff and seeing differences in there and then then the big one I found was with um, very inner city universities so 33% of our, our students are international poor, mm -hmm. maybe, first year may have very poor English skills we have residents like 1500 residents on site than most international so found that the culture difference was also quite interesting and one thing i found was interesting is like i've done a lot of research i've been doing over the last year and a half a lot of it's been focused on other on trying to find the, if there are differences in general internationally in these perspectives and in china for instance when they have evacuations they're not they're not scared of the fire they're scared of crush injuries people die during evacuation drills simply mm -hmm. because of crowding so wow. when so it's it's not just one. Sometimes I might have four deaths just from a from an evacuation exercise, which is that's that's not, not good. Yeah. So <laughs> so then you come in here where well, that's not our issue. So you've got the so then the panic 
and the, and the nervousness and the reluctance from that, that particular student group is completely different from these the, like our domestic students who just don't even think there's and they just never seen an emergency they've never really been involved so they just don't take it seriously mm -hmm. so I started looking at their past experience if they have been involved is there going to be any differences and it just it keep breaking it down and I just keep seeing different different responses everything from just following the crowd to completely ignoring it to actually being verbally getting aggressive and saying I'm not leaving wow yeah which which was which brought some change which I managed to after a while to be able to make I've got the policy up that look, you can, no, there's no refusals. It's if you refuse, you have to, you have to um, speak to him, uh, explain to your manager why you refused, and there's potential repercussions of if it's a student, grades withheld to expulsion, and staff members can be fired for this. So we've really taken it seriously to the point where everybody has to leave. They still complain and ring up, is this a drill? And so I've no one, I don't tell them now, no, no, my security team, nobody except for my boss knows in the entire university if it's a drill until the end, which mm -hmm. stopped that a bit. Right. Then the, which, but it's still, it's, it's hard. We've got not up to 900 wardens trained and it's still, it's all, every time we have a, a false alarm or a back or evacuation drill, there's always so many points. There's only so many issues to deal with and disagreements and it's, it's a, it's a lot. It's just so much, it's so much more complicated and intricate than it is from any other organisation I've worked with in an evacuation perspective. Hmm. Interesting. It makes it, inter it makes it fun, but a lot of people end up having to just tell, like, no, you're wrong. Now leave me alone. <laughs> right, right. Well, this is, I think you and I could sit here and talk all day, but um, we don't want, I don't think people will listen to a five hour long podcast. So we'll continue our conversation another day offline. Yeah. Uh, I can go to sleep now. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but for now, we're going to wrap it up. I'm going to thank Catherine for being our uh, guest. And uh, how can people get in touch with you if they have questions? Can they email you? or yeah. Email. Or I'm on LinkedIn. They LinkedIn. can find me on LinkedIn or email is fine. I'm always available. I'm, I'm glued to my, my fans pretty much glued to my computer at all times, so I'm always available. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll be sure to uh, share your contact information yeah. and in the stuff that we put out. And um, this was super fascinating. I appreciate you uh, saying that you'd be a guest. I never thought someone from Australia would be one of the people who would raise their hand, but this is uh, super fascinating and I hope everybody found it useful. Um, tune in for our next episode, which will be with uh, Steve Forte, uh, the superintendent of schools in Denville, New Jersey, and Chris Wagner, the retired deputy chief, talking about how to build um, the relationship between school administrators and law enforcement, which is often a difficult relationship to manage, but they've done it and we're gonna talk about how they've done it.